big fan of technology. <laughs> I do realize that technology is an amazing thing. We see technology in these past, well, I would even say few years, but even before that, that has made great strides in all kinds of areas. One, I'm thinking of military, and the other, I'm thinking of medicine. I'm thinking of military, specifically in the, the uh, night vision technology that's out there. There are two types of technology used in night vision goggles. And by the way, when, when Hunter Carroll was here, and I, I asked him if he could get me a pair of those, uh, but he was unable to. The, they are image enhancement and thermal imaging. Now, image enhancement, as I'm sure everybody knows, this is not new technology, amplifies existing light. This makes images easier to see. Even on the darkest nights, tiny bits of light are present. Some of this light may be infrared light that people can see. And of course, the thermal imaging takes the heat from people and objects and turns it into images. That's, that is an amazing thing. Now, they are coming out with uh, advanced photonics. They have a film that they can put on sunglasses that help you with night vision. They think that it will be great for military. They even think it will be good for elderly people when they drive at night. Now, as, as we think about this, I'm, I'm reading this, and the one doctor said, we have made the invisible visible, to which, after studying Psalm 139, I said, no, nah, you really haven't. You need these goggles, don't you? And then there's also the technology that we have uh, in, in looking at the unborn child. In fact, I, I noticed, you might already know this, it, you know, you, you read something and then you share it as an illustration, everybody goes, well, everybody knows that. I mean, that's how fast technology is growing. But they have now live streaming womb watching. So you could go right from our sermons to womb watching. And this technology now, you could see the baby and see the baby clearer than ever before. Babies in the womb, they have found out because of this, are big fans of carrots, but not so much leafy greens. And it shows in their faces, the contortions of their faces when they eat. So that is going really into detail However, it's not perfect. We don't see that with the naked eye. We need complicated technology to do what God does in perfection. God who is present everywhere and sees everything in the darkness as no darkness at all. And another problem with man is that we are really literally powerless like God who is all-powerful in his omnipotence. One of the places we read about this is from this fantastic psalm, Psalm 139, which some rabbis have said it's the golden psalm. David in 2 Samuel is described as the sweet psalmist of Israel. No doubt, one of the reasons is because of 
Psalm 139. But we've really chosen Psalm 139 because we want to look at David's heart. What made David a man after God's own heart? Or what does a man after God's own heart look like? Or what does he think about? Or what does he write? Or what does he sing about? And that's what we have here in Psalm 139. And the point that I want to make, the main point, is that David was a man after God's own heart because David delighted in God, in all of God's attributes, and in even in his omniscience, his, his omnipresence, and his omnipotence. And David praised God for those things. But it wasn't just academic. David had a heart for those things, and he would apply those things to his life, even his own birth in the womb of his mother. Well, I do have just a little bit of review before we actually get back into it. And by the way, we did finish verses 1 through 6 last week. But, but we've been looking at, first of all, David, a man after God's own heart. We started that on Father's Day. Then we looked at David's heartfelt repentance. That's how he could be a man after God's own heart, after sinning grievously. Because he repented with a heartfelt passion and asked God's forgiveness. And then we started looking at David's heartfelt knowledge of God. And we're still in that and we'll be in it next week, Lord willing. We started this series last week with looking at God's attributes in the book of Psalms. You know, uh, as we remember our theology classes and we do the attributes of God, uh, we have all of the scriptures that are systematized that you look them up and talk about all of these attributes. It dawned on me, my word, so many times. The passages in Psalms are included in our study of the attributes of God. So last week, we went through these just from the Psalms of David. We looked at he was the creator, the creator who created all things so that man is without excuse and that you can even see his attributes in creation. We saw that he was eternal, has always existed. Now that's mind-stretching, isn't it? And I said to you before, I said that, Whenever you think of the attributes of God, it stretches your mind in a way that nothing else can ever do because you're thinking about God. He is infinite and we are finite. He is sovereign. He rules. He controls all things. And these are great attributes just to go over to understand who our God is. And David writes about them. David sings about them. David applies them to his life. And he's holy. God is holy. He's also righteous. He's a God of love, loving kindness. He's a God of faithfulness. That's why the moon doesn't come crashing into the earth. He's also a God of mercy and compassion. Those of us who know Christ here this morning, you know of his mercy and his compassion and his goodness. And so we talked about that from the book of Psalms. Verses 1 through 6, when we talked about God's omniscience, where he says, you have searched me and known me. You know my, my lying down and my rising up. So we said that God knew David's heart. The motives behind his actions. God knew David's actions. God knew David's thoughts. God knew David's life. And then verse 6 talks about David's knowledge of God. And now we're going to move on to... God's omnipresence, verses 7 through 12, and 
also God's omnipotence, 13 through 18, if I'm just not, unless I'm so enamored with all of these things that we don't get that far, and, and this is one time where even I would approve of that. Well, before we go any further, I would like to begin with a word of prayer. Let's go to our Lord in prayer. Father, we not only know that David was a man after your heart and delighted in you and delighted in who you are, still it was you, the great omniscient God, who had to reveal yourself to him and to us in the scriptures. And so, Lord, this isn't man just trying to figure out what he can and invent things out of his imagination of who you are. This is you who have revealed the magnificence and the glory of yourself, even as that glory is shown in nature. Oh, God, as much as it stretches our minds and, and, and Father, causes us to, to marvel, I pray that it also draws our hearts unto you to desire, to delight in you, to be people after your heart. Pray that the Holy Spirit would, would teach us, Father, this morning, would move our hearts, and I'll thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you would, just turn with me to Psalm 139. I want to look at verse 5 quickly. Verse 5 is where God talks about, or David talks about God knowing his life. It says, you have enclosed me behind and before and laid your hand upon me. I just want to say as far as the larger context goes, some have said in their writings on Psalm 139 that, you know, David maybe was a little fearful of God and, and you know, where, where can I go to hide from you? And I don't think that was the sense of what he wrote at all. David is captivated. David is a man after God's own heart. God has already said that he has called David, given him the Davidic covenant, and laid his hand upon him. This is for David and believers who know God, whom if God is for you, no one can be against you. Now I will say there are some of these things too that as those who would sin, those who are unbelievers, who think that they can get away from God, get away from God's presence, they can sin and not be seen. There is that negative implication here. But I truly believe David's heart is recognized better as one who is his marvel. He doesn't want to get away from God. And even if he did, he couldn't. That's how great his God is. And he says, you have enclosed me behind and before and laid your hand upon me. And I believe that is a phrase of God's favor. And we'll also see that in verse 10. And then David says, such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is too high. I cannot attain it. And as you meditate on God's attributes, there are things that you cannot put together, you cannot reason together in a sense because it's, it's beyond us. Now, last time I said that in studying the attributes of God, I, I understand his eternality. And that's a hard one to grasp because everything in this world that we know has a beginning, but God doesn't. And as R.C. Sproul said, that's the only logical outcome. You cannot even say, well, a God created him, and then there was a God who created him, and a God created him, and you go on for infinity, and that is absurdum. 
is what that is. The only biblical and reasonable answer is to say God has always existed. I, I don't know how, but that's okay because we know it to be true. And it's the only thing that makes sense. Well, David, as he's going through all of these things, says, such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It's too high. I can't attain to it. That is David's delight. That is what David does when he thinks about his God on the night watches. Anselm's great ontological argument boils down to this, that God is the greatest conceivable being. Now, while I believe that does argue for God's existence, I think it's shallow. I think it's short. That's not the best definition. God is greater than our conceivable thoughts about God. Our minds are finite. So conceive what you want about God from the scriptures and go as far as you can. But it still comes short of who he is. And last week we talked about his comprehensive knowledge of all things. He knows all things at once. He knows the past, present, and future at once. He knows the possibilities. He knows the actual. God does not increase in his knowledge because there's nothing to increase because he knows it all. I one time was teaching the attributes of God to a church group and, and said, God doesn't learn anything. The man raised his hand. He says, well, then I'm just like God because I have a hard time learning too. But that's not what is meant there. What is meant there is the fact that he knows all. And he's always known all. He's not studied late at night like we have to. He's always known. This is our God. And this is the God who David takes Psalm 139 and applies to your life. This is the God who loves you, who called you, who saved you, who watches you, and who protects you. Let's take a look now at verse 7, because I think this is a different section now. I think he's now going to talk about God's omnipresence. Now, what do we mean when we say omnipresence? It's a Latin word, and it's a you know, big word, but it's not that big. The Latin word omnis means all, and presence means present. So, all present. He is everywhere present. As one of my professors said, God is everywhere present with his whole being at time, at all times. He's not divided and part of him is here and part of him is there. He is here right now with his whole being and all over wherever churches are worshiping and he is with them with his whole being. And even where sinners think that they are hiding from God and his holiness, he is there with his whole being at all times. And that's exactly what verse 7 says. Where can I go from your spirit or where can I flee from your presence? I don't think David is trying to figure out where he can flee. I think this is poetic. I think he's saying there's nowhere I can go. And this is one of the ways of saying it. There was no place that David could go that God was not present. In Jeremiah, it says this, am I a God who is near? Rhetorically, of course he is, declares the Lord, and not a God far off. Can a man hide himself in hiding places so I do not see him, declares the Lord? Do I not fill the heavens and the earth, declares the Lord? And so this is our great God. 
And so just quickly, it reminds us of another attribute that's called the immensity of God. And the immensity of God is that aspect of God where he transcends all space, transcends time. He's outside of time, yet he created time for us. But he transcends it. Well, what's his omnipresence? This is where he is intricately in it and involved in it everywhere in everyone's life and in everything that happens. It's interesting here he talks about the spirit, the Holy Spirit. Where can I go from your spirit? Now, this is, this is, this is the third person of the Trinity that he's talking about here. Uh, if it wasn't a person... You couldn't go from it. We know that the Holy Spirit indwells believers permanently now. In David's time, it was temporarily or for extended period of time. But if that person sinned, then the Holy Spirit possibly could depart. And if you remember, that's what we said in Psalm 51.11. Do not cast me away from your presence and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Do not take the indwelling person, divine person of the Holy Spirit from me, is what he said. And so David understands that even the Holy Spirit is omnipresent. Christ is omnipresent. You can only be God if you fulfill all of these attributes. You can't have some, but not others. And by the way, they are also eternal. Both the Son and the Holy Spirit are eternal. They weren't created like God's first creation, as some cults will tell you. They too are part of the Godhead. But where can you go from the Holy Spirit? Or where can you flee from God's presence? Nowhere. Now, Again, we see positive and negative consequences here. I think David is thinking of the positive. I don't want to flee from you. And if I did, where could I go? But I do think of, I do think of those who are trying to flee God's presence, who don't want to come to God. But the scripture says this, the eyes of the Lord are in every place watching the evil and the good. And again, that is a twofold thing there. It's a good thing if you're a believer, he's watching over you. It's not a good thing if you're practicing sin. It's not a good thing if you're an unbeliever. Because it also means judgment. Can a man hide himself in hiding places so I do not see him? The Lord said. There is this judgment that he knows all things. But for the believer, in his heart is the hymn, his eye is on the sparrow. And of course, the the last stanza is, and I know he watches me. That is exactly right. To David, this this has been called the golden or the most magnificent psalm that David wrote. I don't know. I I haven't made up my mind, but I know it's sure in the top 10, top five. Look at verse eight. Verse eight says, if I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, behold, you are there. And that's an interesting thought to think that God is there in those places. And and what we have here, as we've had before in Psalm 139, mirrorisms. Mirrorisms are uh, poetic descriptions that you know me from when I lie down and you know me from when I rise up. It means you know all of me. You know everything about me. And here is a mirrorism that you could go from heaven to the grave and you are there. 
Now, Sheol is a, an interesting word, and it bears just a little bit of explanation. Sheol in the Old Testament can mean just the grave and can mean just death, but it also can mean the abode of the dead, and it could also mean Hades, where the wicked dead are there and are judged, being judged. It can mean all of those things. Now, to David, he's thinking, whether I'm alive or whether I'm dead, whether I'm in heaven or my body's in the ground, you are there. But what about the other side of it? What about the negative side of it? Well, the first thing that it tells us is that even death, you cannot escape God. You cannot escape God. Well, if I'm dead, I'm in a grave, and that's just where I am. There's no afterlife. That's foolish. That's unbiblical. Even death does not allow an escape from the judgment of God. And then you say, well, what about Sheol, Hades, hell? I thought that that punishment was the absence of the fellowship and relationship with God. It is. But you do experience his eternal wrath. The presence of his wrath will be there. You will know whom it is that is judging you. You will know whom it is that you've rejected. And God will bring upon what a holy God must do for sin, and that is eternal punishment. But that's not the end of it. We're here today, and if you're listening to these words, the other side of it is, you know what else? He's also a merciful God. You know, this morning in Sunday school, it was mentioned about, they asked Jesus, you know, just show us the Father, and that'll be enough. And he said, well, you mean to tell me I've been here all this time, and you're still saying, show me the Father? He who has seen me has seen the Father. He's the description. He's the explanation of the nature of God. And look how merciful he was. That's the mercy of God. But it only comes, it only comes in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. It doesn't come in additional work like baptism. It doesn't come in additional work like giving. It doesn't even come in additional work like coming to church every time the doors are open. It only comes from that sacrifice and the blood that was shed on the cross. And the moment that you believe that you're a sinner and that he died on the cross for your sins and you come to him and say, Lord Jesus, I believe that you died for me. I take you as my Savior. I embrace you as my Savior and my sacrifice. At that moment, he forgives your sin. He took your condemnation and you will never have condemnation in hell and that's what i think david was thinking of here he's not thinking of that he's going to be in hell or heaven i'm not really sure he's just saying that whether i'm in heaven or whether i'm in the grave or whatever you god are there i can move from your presence and he was glad david was glad verse 9 he goes on, and, and you've got to just appreciate David. I mean, we, we could have just said that all of these verses just mean God's omnipresence and left it go at that, but, but, but David doesn't. David goes into it, looks at it one angle, and then another angle, and, and all of it together is saying he is omnipresent everywhere. He says, if I take the wings of the dawn, if I dwell in the remotest part of the sea, Ten, even there your hand will lead me and your right hand will lay hold of me. Look at that first part, verse 9. If I take the wings of the dawn, probably what this is saying is if I am as quick as the dawn, you know, the speed of light is pretty fast, isn't it? 
186,000 miles per second. And dawn, it only takes light eight minutes to come from the dawn to the earth. That's pretty fast, faster than anything else we know of in this world. And David is saying, even if I was as fast as the dawn, as fast as light, even there you would be there. Or if he says, if I dwell in the remotest part of the sea, and it could be if I was in the remotest part of the sea, but it most likely is on the sea. If I get on the sea and I get in a ship and I go as far as you could go on the Mediterranean Sea, you're even there. And that is the idea of it. You cannot get away from God. And if you're a believer and you love him, you don't want to get away from God. You want to be reminded continually he is there through your difficulties, through your victories, through everything that happens. He is there. And I'm so glad. And then verse 10, he talks about the favorable hand of God. Even there, your hand will lead me and your right hand will lay hold of me. And, and I appreciate this. The idea of God's hand upon you means you have God's favor. David had God's favor. The hand of the Lord was upon David. David, after all, was already said to be a man after God's own heart. God said, I'm looking for that man. I have found him in David. And then he makes the Davidic covenant with David, that one of your offspring will be on the, your kingdom forever. And of course, this was a prophecy regarding the Lord Jesus Christ. So the Lord Jesus Christ would also be a part of what David could understand. In Psalm 27, verse 1, David wrote, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? Really? Really? Even though he didn't say that, but he could have. The Lord is the defense of my life. Whom shall I dread? The Lord's favor is upon me. And I believe he is upon every believer. We are his children. And so these positive things apply to us. And of course, we have those famous verses in Romans 8.31 when Paul another man after God's own heart, writes, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? What, you know, we know Paul was an inspired writer, so it's God who gives him, but also they studied the scriptures. And perhaps he was reading that morning in devotion, Psalm 118, from the Psalms, verse 6, the Lord is for me, I will not fear. What can man do to me? And so this is very favorable, and I'm glad that these, this expression is here because some think that David is perhaps in a Psalm 51 mood. He's not. He is not. And then we move to verse 11. Another interesting thought, and you, we may be very familiar with Psalm 139. And, and so these things aren't new to us, but still, isn't that the way it is when you study God's word and you study God's attributes? There's always something that comes a little clearer. There's always a new insight. There's always something. It's the Holy Spirit impressing upon our hearts who God is. And he says this in verses 11 and 12. For if I say, surely the darkness will overwhelm me and the light around me will be night. 
Even the darkness is not dark to you, and the night is as bright as the day. Darkness and light are alike to you. I won't ask for a raise of hands, but I wonder how many children have been raised by Christian parents, and when you were afraid of the dark, they told you about these verses. Well, it it certainly meets that need, but it meets any intellectual need need that you may have as someone who loves God and studies his word. First of all, look at this idea. He says, overwhelmed by the darkness. I think everyone at one time or another, for one reason or another, is overwhelmed by the darkness. Hence, the night vision goggles. You don't know who you're going to trip over. You don't know what landmine you're going to step on. And you may not even see the enemy. Or you may be a child and are afraid of the dark. Well, he explains it to us all. He says that even in the darkness, the darkness is not dark to you. God doesn't have infrared goggles. Um, And I really don't know how it is except to say he is not limited by human vision. Okay? Whatever vision God, the Spirit has a God who is spirit. Whatever vision he has as the eternal God, it doesn't, doesn't have a problem with space, time, or light or dark. In fact, it says the night is as bright as the day. Darkness and light are alike to you. And I think there is a sense here where he's speaking literally. But many would also say there probably is some spiritual application here, which I would agree with. And the spiritual application is, well, what if it's a dark tunnel of a trial that you're going through? Charles Spurgeon went through many of those if you studied his life. But this is what he wrote. Dense darkness may oppress me, but it cannot shut me out from you and you from me. No matter what trial you're going through this morning, God is there. You may not feel him because we're not really in the business of trying to feel God, okay? We're in the business of believing his word and settling our hearts on it, putting it into practice like David. He's there. No matter what trial or difficulty you're having, even the worst kind, he is there. And you know, it, it even says that he, we learned last week that he puts our tears in a bottle. He's not just there. He's compassionately there. He's compassionately there wanting a relationship with us. And David understood that, and David got on board with that relationship. And that's why God said he was a man after my own heart. The other darkness that is sometimes mentioned could be what about the darkness in the world, the darkness of sin. Well, we've got to be careful because it says darkness and light are alike to you. So it's talking literally, but whether people are doing deeds in darkness or deeds in light, God sees it all with his omnipresence. It says in Job 34, 21, for his eyes are upon the ways of man and he sees all his steps. There is no darkness or deep shadow where the workers of iniquity may hide themselves. But for David, it was... Even in the midst of my enemies, Psalm 23, even in the midst of my enemies and what I cannot see, you see it all and your hand leads me and guides me and your right hand lays hold of me. 
Well, we want to move now from omnipresence. And almost everyone I've, I've read on this uh, have said that we have seen God's omniscience, verses 1 through 6, God's omnipresence, 7 through 12, what we just went through. This is clear. But there are some, which I agree, say that verses 13 through 18 talks about his omnipotence, all-powerful. And you say, well, wait a second. He's just talking about birth and God's power creation. And I gave it away, didn't I? And power in the womb and creation and forming. So it is his omnipotence that is there. And what David does is David is not even saying what he does for all mankind. David is saying what you've done for me, my life, my body, in the womb of my mother. And so he understood God's power, and it's going to come out in the form, a wonderful form of life at conception, going to come forward in the idea of when we were all formed in the womb He understood that it took God's design and power. One writes this, The fact that man is manifest to God, even to the very bottom of his nature and in every place, is now confirmed from the origin of man. The development of the child in the womb was looked upon by the Jewish sages as one of the greatest mysteries. And here the poet praises this coming into being as a marvelous work of the omniscience, omnipresence, and omnipotence of God. And that's Kyle and Dalich, and they also quote Ecclesiastes 11, verse 5. Just as you do not know the path of the wind and how bones are formed in the womb of the pregnant woman, so you do not know the activity of God who makes all things. What a sovereign God. What a great God. Well, let's move and work through this then. This is verses 13, and we'll try to get all the way to 18. But we're not in any hurry. Verse 13 says, For you formed my inward parts. You wove me in my mother's womb. Speaking of God's power even in the womb, and that's what all powerful means, omniscience and omnipotence, potent means power, omnipotent. He's all of the omnis. And here it says, you formed my inward parts, you wove me in my mother's womb. Well, this is going to be enjoyable and, and a joy to go through. First of all, what's happening here? Well, we see this language of creating, this language of forming, this language of knitting or weaving or covering. It describes God's sovereign superintendence over even the natural process of reproduction. So I would agree that there is this natural reproduction that goes on. But I would also say because of the scriptures that God is involved in it as well. God oversees it as well. And that should be just a wonderful comfort to those of you who are pregnant or have just had a baby. That that whole time, God is over it all. He's over it all. And it's even going to talk about his creativity and the variety. Not 
no babies. No, babies don't come out exactly alike. I don't know if you knew that or not. And they co- and what I can't understand is how they come out with different personalities. I mean, I had two boys, and so there were all boy toys there. And then we had a little girl. And all of a sudden, she was into dresses and into dolls. And I'm like, where did this come from? Well, it came from God. In God's designing even our gender. Even our gender. And so we're going to see some of this. But here, notice the word form. It's, it's the word, that, and I think this is the, the best interpretation of it. The, the King James Version says possess. I'm okay with that if you see it as he created and then possessed it. But I like the NIV says create. I like that word. I like the NASB form. This is really what, what is going on here. This is the forming of this in the womb. Now, when it says the inward parts, it says, you wove me in the, my inward parts in my mother's womb. That gets even more interesting. The word wove, you might imagine, means to weave or to knit. It can also mean to cover, as the King James says. But I think the covering will be that which he wove. And it's the idea that he's putting it life together. It's the divine creativity Forming and protecting the child, the unborn child. It is a child. Job says, clothe me with skin and flesh and knit me together with bones and sinews. And that's what God does. The ICR Defender's Bible. I don't know if you know that, that ICR has a, has a study Bible out. It's called the Defender's Bible. And, and it's also free online. You can look at the notes. And I, from time to time, I do because I want to see what they have to say about verses like this. And I don't know exactly who wrote this, whether this was Henry Morris or our own beloved Dr. Galuza. But it says this. Speaking of the fact that he wove and knit the baby together and even a protective covering, this is a beautiful metaphor for the marvelous provisions for the protection of the embryonic child while growing in the womb. And he's so right. And I, and I have to say, I, I like the term embryonic child because that's what it is. It's a child, but it's in its embryo form. And that means that life begins at conception. I don't care what they say. And you know what? Arguing with them will not really do a whole lot. Praying for them and sharing Christ will do a whole lot. But I remember years ago, it was all about DNA. DNA is going to show you. DNA is going to show you that we evolved from the apes. Well, now they consent that DNA is, is, though similar to other animals, which would seem reasonable since the same creator created them, but different, different. Now that they recognize that, did they give it up? No. In fact, if, if you prove to them they're wrong in every case, they will not give it up because they do not want God to exist because they are fleeing from God and his spirit, which they can never do. But one writes this, that fact that God knows and cares for children in the womb means that God's concern for life 
begins at conception. Some people argue for the moral right to have an abortion because the mother has the right to do as she pleases with her own body. But Psalm 139 demonstrates that God sees another person there in the mother's womb. And of course, God is clear about it in his scriptures. Now, as we notice some of these other words in verse 13, like the inward parts, literally, that means kidneys. <laughs> and sometimes that's even used about the affection that I love you with my inward parts. I love you with all my kidneys. Well, this is poetry, and it's showing where it's found, and it's referring to the inward parts. Here, literally, that is being designed by God. And when you say you love your wife from your heart, you mean it from your being. And men, you ought to be saying that occasionally. Okay? You ought to be doing that. I don't want to hear that. Well, the day we got married, I told you I said I loved you, and if I change my mind, I'll let you know. I don't want to hear that. It makes me chuckle, but it's not true. And so here it also says, well, what are the inward parts? Well, it's that which is in, but he's talking specifically about what? In Hebrew parallelism, the mother's womb. He's talking about the mother's womb. The womb which he created, which God created. He knows all about it. And David is just beside himself. And then we have that wonderful verse in verse 14. David says, I will give thanks to you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, and my soul knows it very well. In looking at God's power, we see that God doesn't just perform. There, God does these things with his heart. David has to give thanks to him, because he, and that's the right thing to do, to give credit to where credit is due. And he says, I am fearfully made. Now, what does that mean? Well, yes, there is the idea that sometimes fear means you are afraid of, but it doesn't always. And when we talk about the fear of the Lord, yes, even there could sometimes be the, the frightening if someone disobeys or rejects God. But, but it also means the awesome reverence. You made me out of reverence. Now, every day we see people that have babies, and, and, and <laughs> it, it's commonplace. When you get together with your family reunion, every one of them came from a mother. We all know it. But David stops for a moment and says, this, this is a miracle. In fact, one of the best ways to find out if it's a miracle is just ask the couples that have just recently had a baby. This is a miracle, absolutely. And we need to appreciate that. And not only in the design, the grand design, which is really beyond our comprehension or even science, although science is, is doing well. There's some fantastic pictures of the baby in the womb, the baby in the womb. But they don't see as perfectly as God sees. And so... David is marveling in all of this. He's, he's reverencing God. The creation of another human being in the womb of a mother causes David to worship. He worships about everything because he's a man after God's own heart. It says wonderfully made. 
This means it's surpassing. This means it's incredible. This means it's extraordinary. And that is exactly it. It, That's it. And when your little grandson, Bo, smiles at you, it's also heartwarming. This is God's works. And David says, my soul knows it very well. I've taken your theology class, and now I've applied it to my heart. I know this. And so this is where David is at. He's applying all of these things to his heart and all of these things while talking about the omnipotence of God. At this point, Charles Spurgeon talks about new birth. That's that's another miracle. Maybe even greater as we know our own heart, we know our own sin, we know what we really deserve. And yet he saved us. And I trust that you know Christ here. But Charles Spurgeon says, if we are marvelously wrought upon even before we are born, what should we say of the Lord's dealings with us after we quit his secret workshop and he directs our pathway through the pilgrimage of life? What shall we not say of that new birth? which is even more mysterious than the first and exhibits even more love and wisdom of the Lord. Ephesians 2, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And he's going to talk some more about the secret place, the inward parts, mother's womb. He's going to talk some more about that. He's not done. He says in verse 15, my frame was not hidden from you. And here, many believe that this Hebrew word would lead us to believe he's talking about the bones and the skeleton. He's, he's, you know, already the inward parts. And now here he's putting everything, attaching everything to it. He says, it was not hidden from you. It's in, it was in the secret place that nobody really could see, but it wasn't hidden from you when I was made in secret. And then he says, and skillfully wrought in the depths of the earth. This word for skillfully wrought means to be creative and have variety. And even if you're an identical twin, you're not completely identical. But beyond that, Beyond that, we, we know that, all, you know, you, you could say, oh, I know, I know Garrett. Yeah, Garrett's an Atterbury. Okay, I could see the resemblance, you know. You could pick them out. Oh, yeah, that's an Albin for you, you know. Or that's a Hilbert, or that's a Hadley. But they're still different, and God has created everyone different and unique. So again, to those with child here, just know that God is watching over and developing your child. And he's watching over you too. And he's going to give you a miraculous, wonderful, fearful blessing at the end of nine months. So he skillfully makes this variety. He's the engineer of, of mankind in the womb. And then he mentions the unformed substance in verse 16. He says, your eyes have seen my unformed substance. Now, this word means to fold. This is pretty cool. 
it means it's something that's wrapped or folded together. And if you think of an embryo, that's exactly the, the, the fetus position that it's in. And as it develops, it begins to unfold with all of its members that are developing under the grand design of God. But our God, omnipresent God, omniscient God, omnipotent God, because he's bringing about, is the one who has viewed all of this. Viewed it not just to watch, but viewed it as to bring it about. But the last part of 16 is a little interesting. He's going to talk about his ordaining of days. Now we're getting into the sovereignty of God. It is amazing what we've just talked about. But when you get into the sovereignty of God that he ordains our days, that's what David said. Your eyes have seen my unformed substance and in your book were all written the days that were ordained for me. Now, the book here, whether it was a literal book, a book of remembrance here, or David's poetry, it refers to that God knows all things. God doesn't have to write it down. We have to write it down. We have to write it down because you know that a dull pencil is better than a sharp mind. Write it down. But God doesn't have to do that. But it means that God knows this, that God has always known this. And God continues to know this. It reminds us of what we read about Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 5. Before I formed you in the womb, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Meaning, I entered into a relationship. There was a relationship there. And before you were born, I consecrated you. He had called Jeremiah. I have appointed you a prophet of nations. And it shows then the ordination of one's life. Now, I understand this is still a mystery because we have the responsibility of man. We have the, the will of man, and I understand that. But there are some things that God will allow us to do, even though it's not the best thing for us, so that we learn. But I also know that there, when we get to heaven, we're going to hear a lot of times, yeah, the reason why you wanted to do this but couldn't do this because I had my sovereign hand involved there. The days were ordained for him. And you think of David's life. He was a shepherd boy. And yet as a shepherd boy, he would fight against bears and lions that would come against the sheep. He learned to be a shepherd. And it's interesting when God called David to be the king, the king from which all other kings will be measured, the one from whom his line will come, the Messiah, it was a shepherd one who understood the care of those that he was taking care of, like God, like the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord is my shepherd. He takes care of all of these things. So we think about his attributes, and we have to be careful it doesn't get too academic that we forget who he really is. And who is he? Well, just look at the Lord Jesus Christ. He who has seen me has seen the Father, he said. And this goes on to the person's lives. We see David there, and then he, he happens to take cheese to the soldiers when Goliath is bad-mouthing the God of Israel. And David, a man after God's own heart, could not be settled with it. Let me at him. Let me at him. Well, here, wear this armor. 
nope, don't need the armor. I have God. And he said to everyone, God will have the victory and I will have your head today. And he did. After he hit Goliath with the stone, made him unconscious, took his sword and chopped his head off. That is what God does to his enemies. And David was all about it. Then David was also given the Davidic covenant. And so David's saying, my my days were ordained by you for me. And the truth is, is that every believer can say that. Everyone can say that. Every believer, as he's ordained it, I believe even the moment that we come to Christ has been ordained. Some of us didn't come to Christ right away. We wish we did. But the truth of the matter is, I think God ordained all of those things. And he ordains your spiritual gifts. And he ordains your participation in Grace Bible Church. Let's just get right down to it. Not just in ministry, but at Grace Bible Church. He's ordained all of that. It says in Jeremiah 29, For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for calamity, to give you a future and a hope. Believer, have hope today. Brothers, beloved, have hope today. And then we move to verses 17 and 18. David exclaims his emotion it's his emotion at this point that's practically pushing the pen besides the holy spirit how precious also are your thoughts to me O god how vast is the sum of them if i should count them they would outnumber the sand and when i awake i am still with you well the first thing i want to mention is verse 17 he's not saying how precious are my thoughts about you He is saying, how precious are your thoughts to me? How precious is your revelation about you to me? And yes, it would include David's meditating on those and and growing on those. But but he's thinking now of God's thoughts. And and specifically, if you're going to look at it in the context, what did we just see? We just saw that he ordained all things. And to David... It could be said that when he says your thoughts, he means your plans, your designs, your program, your thoughts, your words, your will, all of that together. How precious are they to me? David thought God was precious. David adored the Lord God. Now, he reverenced him, and there were times that he was afraid of him, like the incident with the, uh, with the ark on the wagon. David didn't, after that, after, after Uzziah was killed, David didn't go near that thing for a while. But this is adoration. This is reverence. He loved the Lord. He says, whom have I in heaven but you, Lord? And then he said, and there's no one on earth that I desire beside thee. Oh, my word, that we could even attain that. He says, how vast are they? They're innumerable. Your thoughts are innumerable. My thoughts are not innumerable. They're just OCD. They just keep coming back and going round and round. But your thoughts are innumerable. They keep coming and they're new and they're fresh and they're clear. And they're things I didn't know about before. And it keeps being unfolded more and more. When we get to heaven, we're going to see it more and more. 
He said, if I should count them, they would outnumber the sand. And there's certainly poetry to say of how much it is. Our minds are finite. And, and I, I, you know, I, I'm thankful that they are finite. I'm, I'm thankful that, well, even with finite minds, we get blessed by understanding who God is. And I'm so thankful for that. I'm, I'm thankful that God created us so that we could have a mind, will, and an intellect to study his word, to know who he is, to love him and be a person after his heart. I'm so thankful for that. In Psalm 119, which I think David wrote, doesn't say who wrote it. Psalm 19, numerous times he says, I love your word. And at first I stumbled over that. Why would you not just say, I love the Lord? Because if you love his word, you love him. If you love him, you will love his word because his word is about his plans, his designs, his attributes, and his thoughts. And David says, it's just too much. It's just too much. Just in a few moments I have, a few minutes I have, I want to just bring something up here. So David was a man who meditated on God. He talks about meditation. Uh, we include memorization, which was probably part of his, but, but the idea is to meditate on it. And, and David is saying here, I meditate on your thoughts. Instead of meditating on my own thoughts, I want to meditate on your thoughts. And when you preach, by the way, that's what you want. You want to give God's thoughts, God's word, not my opinion. That's what you want to do. And that's what you want to be careful about. Please, Lord, help me not to do that. But as we, as we look at this here, David often talks about meditating on God, his word, and his works. Psalm 27, 4. One thing I have asked from the Lord, you've got to love David. My word, look at what comes out of his prayer. One thing I've asked from the Lord, that I shall seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord and to meditate in his temple. You know what? It, 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 why David was a man after God's own heart, what it looks like to be a man after God's own heart, is not a mystery. Talks about his works, partly of the works of creation of man, but all the works on the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wonderful works, I will meditate even as Beethoven meditated on it and wrote the glory of the God of nature and as Celeste eloquently played for us. And then Psalm 119.97, Oh, how I love your law. It is the meditation all the day. Now, what does meditate mean? Well, there's several words it means. Meditate means to ponder. So that's good. That's all you get good. It means to repeat. I think that's good. That's how we do remember. It means to inquire. You're not asking God, you know, in a, in a harsh way. You're asking God in a wanting to learn way. And it means also to study. It means also to study God's thoughts and his attributes. In Psalm 111, verse 2, it says, Great are the works of the Lord. They are studied by all who delight in them. And so isn't that interesting? Studying of the word causes you to delight in him. Causing you to delight in him causes you to be a person after God's own heart. 
Let me read it again. But whom have I in heaven but you? And besides you, I desire nothing on earth. Psalm 37, 4 says, Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. I, I, you want to talk about learning a new insight? I've received one by looking at this. I would always say this means that if you delight yourself in the Lord, he's going to put the desires in your heart, and you're going to have those desires, and he's going to fulfill them. Well, he's not talking about rifles and shotguns and quilting and cars and houses. But it would be his will. You're delighted in him. You delight in his will. That's your desire now. He'll bring you his will, help you direct and lead and guide you. And I often give this as counsel if someone asks me, how do you know the, the, the will of God? But there's something else to it. If you delight yourself in the Lord, he will give you the desires of your heart. If you delight yourself in the Lord, like David is delighting himself in the book, in, in Psalm 139, you know what you want? You want God. You want God. And of course, God's will. But you want God. Whom have I in heaven but thee, Lord? And there's none upon earth that I desire beside you. And now, one little phrase I need to show you there in verse 18. He says, when I awake, I am still with you. What what does he mean by that? I think what he means by that is, When you meditate on God, the night watches on your bed, you usually at some point drift off into sleep. Oh no, oh no, I've stopped thinking about God. No worries. When you awake, he's still with you. He has not left. He's there. He holds you in the palm of your hand. He doesn't sleep, but we do, and he still has us. One writes this, He awakens from sleep and is conscious of glad wonder to find that like a tender mother by her slumbering child, God has been watching over him and that all the blessed communion of past days abides as before. You pick up where you left off. And so as we think about this, uh, I hope I've given us enough thought to, to, to say that the omniscient, omnipresent, omnipotent Lord is always with us. And he's with us through every victory and he's with us through every trial, no matter how hard, no matter what it is. And of course, it was our Lord who said, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Meaning he is there to lead, to guide. His hand is upon us. It means indeed that he's watching over us, protecting us, trying to bring about his will in our lives. So let me conclude. Intimately knowing God, his attributes, his love, care, and protection raises our hearts up to him. This heartfelt knowledge of God is the basis for loving, adoring, and worshiping our God. As God develops the embryonic child in the womb, so he develops the believer's heart to follow after him and be a person after God's own heart. Let's pray. Father, these words are too high. First of all, Lord, they're too high because we don't deserve it. As David said, what is man that you are mindful of him? It is because of your incredible love 
And then to think that you sent your son, that you would love us that much to send your son to die in our place for our sins. Oh God, if there's one here who does not know Christ, may he have a glimpse of who Christ is and come running to him for his salvation and forgiveness of sins. Father, we ask you also too that as we think of these things, Lord, would you accept our apology that we're not always the people after your heart that we ought to be. But like David will say, search me, O God, and lead me in the way everlasting. Would you indeed do that with us? And we'll give you all the praise and the glory. In Jesus' name, amen.